Is it much warmer out there? I don't know. I think Lonnie's got the cool spot, don't you? <laughs> He's not sharing at all. That's all right. <laughs> Man, we need to do marriage counseling first thing here in this church. <laughs> what do you say we do a marriage series? We'll just start off with that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 today. I'm kidding. Um, one prayer before we get started. Thank you, Lord, for um, my new friends, uh, some new, some older, Lord, but uh, friends that have the common vision of knowing you, Jesus, following you, Jesus, and, uh, and believing that you're the light of the world, you're the way, the truth, and the life. And we so long for our friends and our family uh, to come to know you in this region, but also in the far corners of the world who've yet to hear the gospel. Uh, we just pray that you would use the gospel of Mark and the story of John the Baptist and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness to uh, fuel our fire and to spur us on, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week was a bit of an introduction to the gospel of Mark. I may uh, tag team on to that a little bit this week. And uh, we may not advance a ton in uh, the gospel yet this week. I was looking and there's 45 verses. Um, and we're definitely not getting that far um, by the end of the day. So, especially since I started my 30-minute timer on my wrist. So, um, there was a church father by the name, name of Papias uh, who called Mark the interpreter of Peter. That essentially... Peter brought the information uh, to Mark as uh, Mark would then be sort of a secretary or interpreter of that information and pen it, uh, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, to give us the scripture that we have today. This church father in the early centuries uh, said this about the gospel of Mark and what Mark did. For he planned out one goal ahead of time, namely to leave out nothing which he heard and not to falsify any of the words of Peter. So it just shows a bit of the integrity of the scripture that we have. If you've done much studying of the inspiration and inerrancy of the scripture, the canonization of scripture, and, uh, and what we have in our hands today um, is, is the complete revelation of God. It's a pretty exciting thing, and it's exciting to come to this short 16 chapter gospel of um, Mark. Uh, by the way, you can get online and you can listen to some of last week's introductions so you get more of the big picture of what we're looking at here. Um, Mark has a key word that is used 41 times throughout this book. And that's something that you learn as a Bible student is, uh, you know, what, what are some repeated things that will kind of help me understand the book? This key word is the word immediately, all right, immediately. And it kind of shares the fast-paced nature of the gospel. Mark seems to be more interested in the actions of Jesus and less interested in the words of Jesus in this case. And you may say something like, after all, actions speak louder than words. Well, Mark may have had that as a bit of his um, oomph when he wrote this book. Uh, we are revealed Jesus, which is the main uh, point of this book, showing Jesus as a servant, to show Jesus as 
a servant, the key verse of this book. And hopefully you'll start to get this as we go week after week. The key verse is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Since I was a youth pastor in Corvallis, I taught the gospel of Mark, and it's always rung on my heart that Jesus is a servant and he desires us to serve one another and lay our lives down for one another. The key verse goes like this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As I was studying, I heard the story of Peter the Great, kind of a Russian czar, if you will, or emperor, or whatever they've got over there, uh, from back in the day. And I never knew this about Peter the Great. Let me just read, just because it's not something I came up with. Let me read about Peter the Great here. Peter the Great, after he built up the Russian Empire at high cost, decided he must have a navy. But no one in Russia knew the art of shipbuilding. So Peter vacated his throne for a time and, it, and appointed his consort, Catherine, as regent. Laid aside his royal apparel, dressed as a common laborer, and went to England where he learned the art of shipbuilding himself. He worked in the shipyard side by side with men who little dreamed of the dignity of the apparently uncouth artisan who toiled with them day by day. Peter was no less an emperor when he wrought with hammers and adze than when he returned to his throne. So a bit of the picture of the gospel, a little bit of a picture of what Jesus did. He went and laid aside the privileges and right of deity. He took on flesh and lived the life of a, of a man, fully God, fully man, servant of all, laying down his life, and yet totally and complete majesty. About the gospel of Mark, J.C. Ryle wrote, It is a gospel singularly full of precious facts about the Lord Jesus, narrated in a simple, terse, pithy, and condensed style. I kind of like that. You know, maybe a little bit humorous. Uh, simple, for sure. <laughs> um, pithy. Sounds kind of funny and clever, I guess. He um, goes on to say, If it tells us a few of our Lord's sayings, it is eminently rich in its catalogs of his doings. Ryle went on to say, St. Mark has a special gift of terse brevity. Something that's not my gift, for sure. And it's a graphic painting and wonderful combination. While on every occasion he compresses the discourses, works, and history into the simplest possible kernel, he, on the other hand, pulls the scenes more clearly than St. Matthew does, who excels in the discourses. Not only do single incidents become, in his hands, complete pictures, but even when he's very brief, he often gives with one pencil stroke something new and peculiarly his own. I kind of like that. So as we're reading the Gospel of Mark, and maybe you would even start reading it on your own time, just appreciate how fast it is, how fast-paced it is, but that there's something really awesome about it. Like, that the Lord had intention in Mark's style and speed when he wrote it. One final thing by Warren Wearsby. The Gospel of Mark is just the book for busy people 
who want to use every opportunity to serve God. Is that anybody here? You're a busy, I mean, I have three horse trailers pull up out here to go to church. It's like, all right, I got stuff to do. I got animals to feed. I got cows to move, but come on in here. All right, preacher man, 30 minutes, hit it on your watch. Let's get going. I got to get out of here. It's like, hey, I get it. Okay. It's just the book for us. It presents our Lord quite on the move meeting the physical and spiritual needs of all kinds of people. And so it's interesting. Mark just gets right into it. He doesn't do a genealogy. And, and as we talked about last week, like slaves and servants don't have genealogies. I mean, slaves and servants is like, hey, I need you to do something for me, okay? The purpose of Matthew is to show Jesus is king, so the genealogy goes that direction. The purpose of John is to show Jesus is God, so you'll notice there's a sort of deity genealogy. The purpose of Luke is to show Jesus is a man, so it goes all the way back to Adam. It's pretty special. But for a gospel, it's to show Jesus as a servant who laid his life down for the sins of the world. Boom. Let's hear it. Let's see what happened, okay? And so he gets right into it. He talks about Jesus and how he's the son of God. He talks about John the Baptist coming on the scene and how John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist being, interestingly enough, the cousin of Jesus, but uh, someone who the prophet spoke of. And as I was preparing for this week's study, I feel like I just rushed a little bit on just who John the Baptist is. I'm really struggling with teaching Mark because normally when I teach the synoptic gospels, which you can read Mark and, and I typically go, oh, and here's how Matthew put it, you know, or here's how John, because I want like at all, but this time I really feel like, hey, let's just, why did Mark put what Mark put? And let's just stick with that for a while. Okay. It's, it's a new thing for me. Okay. So bear with me as I try to do it. We'll see how well that works. But notice what the prophet said in verse two. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So as we get on, this will be uh, the story of John the Baptist for just a little bit and the prophecies concerning him. Malachi chapter three, verse one is one of these prophecies. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. One chapter later in Malachi 4, 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. That was a ministry of John the Baptist, sort of working repentance in people for the gospel to be coming. And what would the gospel do? In one hand, it would bring a sword. In other hand, it would work reconciliation and bring peace on earth. Isaiah chapter 40 is another John the Baptist prophecy in chapter 40, verses 3 through 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Some of you could act this out out here in Polina. Why don't you, some of you try to be John the Baptist? Go out here to the sagebrush and maybe yell out over the town or something. I'm with the new church, you know, or something. That'll really get people coming, I'm sure. Uh, but the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Lucas, I think that's your call in life, buddy. Man, I don't know what happened to that Teskey kid. He was such a nice boy till he turned 15. All right, 14. All right. But what was the voice crying out? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made smooth. 
That was part of the ministry of John the Baptist, to prepare a way, to prepare a highway. Every king back in the day had a consort go before him and announce his coming. As I said last week, John the Baptist had the great heart of preparing the way and getting out of the way. Um, If I may hop over to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 about John the Baptist. Chapter 11, verse 7. And if if you don't want to flip there, just listen to what he says. He talks to the multitudes about John the Baptist and he says this. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? I mean, all the Facebook feeds were blowing up about this guy out there in the wilderness and down by the River Jordan and yelling at everybody and wearing weird clothes. And what'd you go out to see? He said, did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? Some sort of a feeble guy. He says, uh, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. It was interesting. Yesterday, I went to a, uh, a public event and I met a, guy, met a guy who's a software programmer from Silicon Valley and shook his hand and noticed what dainty hands you have, <laughs> you know? And I'm a pastor. I mean, I spend my time behind a computer, all right? If you've ever shaken Joe Papinaw's hand, that guy is Marlboro man right there, all right? But of course, all of you guys, you know, you, you're cutting your hands on barbed wire and, you know, castrating calves and cutting your hands and all. You can say that from the pulpit if you're in Polina. You know, and you just, you are, you know, and he's like, what well, do you go out to see John the Baptist? Like he's a software programmer from Silicon Valley, you know, and, you know, he's like, no way. And you knew that. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing, they're in the king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, more than a prophet. Listen to what he says. He quotes Isaiah, he quotes Malachi, and he says, you know what? Verse 11 of Matthew 11, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he was least in the kingdom is greater than he. And that's an amazing thing. John the Baptist, no one's been as awesome as John the Baptist, Jesus says. But you know what? Those that have been born of God, who've been born by the grace of God into a new and living hope and faith and life. John the Baptist can't even compare to you because you've got the gospel of grace just covering your life. And he goes on to say, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violence take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So it's an interesting thing. John the Baptist, like, it's like he's got the spirit and power of Elijah upon him. You know, I don't know exactly what that means, but it's something about that ministry of, of Elijah that we read in, Isaiah, in Malachi chapter 3 and, and 4 in Isaiah chapter 40. So John the Baptist, even a picture of a servant himself coming, preparing the way and getting out of the way. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So he came to the Jordan River. He was in this area of the Jordan River that is uh, near the Dead Sea. It's more near the Dead Sea than it is the Sea of Galilee. And so it's very rugged. It's, I mean, it makes Central Oregon and the Polina area look like a lush Garden of Eden, you know, it is just rocks and crags of rocks and 
and then a sea that's been cursed like at Sodom and Gomorrah and is 30 times saltier than the ocean. That's the Dead Sea. You can float in it because it's so salty. Don't shave the day that you go in there because it burns like crazy. That's all I've got to say. And don't drink it because, well, okay, anyways. You're just like, very, very salty. All right. Um, but uh, he came and he was baptizing people, and John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission or the cleansing or the forgiveness of sins. And uh, and all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him. And that's, that's a pretty significant statement. John was getting some traction. His ministry was widespread. Everyone from the area of Jerusalem and like the Bethlehem area, they were going just directly east. And if you got a Bible map on the back of your um, Bible, you can see where the Dead Sea is. And there's a little river going north of the Dead Sea. And it hits another sea called the Sea of Galilee. And the ministry of John the Baptist happened on that Jordan River stretch, just directly east of Jerusalem. And all of that Judea area was coming out. Jerusalem, that's a hike, it's a travel, it's through the desert. But they went out and they heard the preaching of this man. They were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. And as they were baptized, you might underline in your Bible, they confessed their sins. They confessed their sins. There's the wonderful promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there was a confessing, a, a simple saying of, Lord, I recognize that you are holy. I recognize that my life has not been measuring up to your holiness and your good and righteous standards. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I've sinned against you. And Lord, I want forgiveness of my sins. I need forgiveness of my sins. And baptism is a wonderful picture of that. Because as we know in the New Testament, it's a picture of not only Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, but it's a picture of the the Christians, old man dying and being buried with Christ. And the good news is, is that Jesus didn't stay buried in the tomb. He rose again on the third day. And even so, we raised to a newness of life. We've got a new nature. We've got a spirit within us of life. As Galatians chapter 3 tells us, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I live I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. I was, I was dead and I was buried with Christ, but I've got a new life. And as we confess our sins, uh, that happens. And you know, baptism is a wonderful, wonderful picture to the world of that death to sin, life to Christ principle and truth and reality. In fact, the New Testament says that uh, the very same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead lives in us, gives us that newness of life. Now, John, verse 6, was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. The question is asked, what do Winnie the Pooh and John the Baptist have in common? Same middle name, really. What a, okay, no. Oh, <laughs> uh, you were going somewhere else with that, weren't you? There next to the Dead Sea are a group of caves that in the 1950s, a shepherd boy who was tending his sheep 
bored out of his mind, began tossing stones into. And as he tossed stones into one cave, he heard the breaking of jars. And so he went up in there and he found these uh, sort of um, containers filled with scrolls. Now, of course, to a 12-year-old boy or a 14-year-old boy, it's like this is the most boring thing I could have possibly found in a cave. And so he took the scrolls to his dad and his dad took the scrolls and, and went and was u- going to use the fabric that uh, was so well-preserved uh, to make shoes out of until someone in town had heard about these scrolls, went and looked at them and found that they were um, nearly direct copies of the manuscripts of the book of Isaiah and other books. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they are manuscripts that show how incredibly preserved the scriptures are, though there have been so many different um, translations and copies that those copies are actually so very accurate and any little variations that may happen over the copies, and by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this uh, here or in Primeville, little dementia that I'm trying to work through here, but the, the copies in the manuscripts that we have um, stack as high as five and a half Empire State Buildings, and by looking at all those manuscripts, we can see that there's really no discrepancies that we need be concerned about, whereas the best amount of copies that the world has in the secular literature stack about as high as this podium and there are insane numbers of variants so it's a wonderful thing that we have the scriptures and we have the dead sea scrolls to back that up now i bring that up because right next door to these caves lived a group of people called the aseans and the aseans you can go to their ruins to this day i've been there i've walked through it they were just a they were almost the amish of their day Okay, they were very pure. They did these bathings regularly. Uh, They were very strict. And they just, they were almost monastic, trying to get away from civilization and live in the wilderness. And it's believed that John the Baptist was, in a sense, discipled in that area. And that's where he got kind of the, the wacky diet of bugs and the camel hair clothes that, you know, just feel so good when you go for a run on a muggy day. And the leather belt and, uh, and the honey. So... Uh, it's believed that he was a part of the ASEAN civilization next to uh, the Dead Sea. But look at verse 7. John the Baptist preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. So here's part of his preparing the way. And he says, I indeed baptize you with water. And we know from the New Testament, the baptism of water is a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism that men would often do to other men, and the element used is water. But John foretells the Messiah coming, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And we spoke of this last week, of the second baptism we see in the scripture, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, where the baptizer is Jesus himself, and the element is the person of the Holy Spirit. When people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit comes with gifts that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He comes in order. He doesn't come to cause a lot of confusion. But when he comes, the number one sign in the scripture of a baptism with the Holy Spirit is boldness to share the gospel and to even be a martyr for the name of Jesus, for the testimony of Jesus. 
You can read more about this baptism with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is ascending uh, just before he ascends to heaven. He quotes John the Baptist's quote here. And then in Acts chapter 2, you read of that day where the first baptism with the Holy Spirit took place on the day of Pentecost. And I don't want to talk a lot more about that because we did touch on it last week. But listen to what J.C. Ryle has to say about John's preaching of repentance and his preaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle says, The principal work of every faithful minister of the gospel is to serve the Lord Jesus fully before his people, to show them the fullness of his power to save. The next great work he has to do is, uh, before them, give the work of the Holy Ghost and the need of being born again and inwardly baptized by his grace. So John the Baptist was a faithful minister of the gospel. He preached a gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins, confessing your sin before the Lord, receiving the forgiveness of his grace. Uh, And then also, hey, the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. It's part of the new covenant. The new covenant is recognizing in the old covenant, we didn't have the strength to obey the Lord and live for the Lord. The new covenant is Jesus came and obeyed and lived for us. Now we rest in his accomplishment, receive the power from him. So now we can go out obeying and representing him to the world. And so in verse nine, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. I'm not going to quote the other gospels as to what was said there by John. You get to do that on your, I want to, because I can see John watching Jesus come down out of the brush. And then he says that saying that I'm not going to say he said has something to do with a lamb sins of the world. You guys. Okay. But you remember that, but you'll remember with me. That John was like, I, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, no, no. He says, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. I don't believe that the gospel says that we have to be baptized to be saved. But I believe that the gospel says once we've been saved, one of our first steps of obedience is to be baptized. And to step out in that symbol of the gospel for us. You know, Mark chapter 16 tells us that as the disciples go out, uh, that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who doesn't believe will be condemned. And so I encourage you, if you've never been baptized, there's a, we talked about it last week, there's a bathtub right next door with a hand pump. And I went over to it last week to wash my kids' pants off. There's a hornet's nest in there right now. So, Mike, this week, your job is to take care of that, okay? So we can get some Palina baptisms going, okay? Probably should call some landlords and see if that's okay. Anyways, so Jesus said, it's, for, it's you know, permit it to be so. This is to fulfill righteousness, to live a life of a Christian. Be baptized. It's one of the first steps of obedience as a new Christian. And Jesus led by example in that. And immediately coming on up from the water, verse 10, he saw the heavens parting. Language in one translation is tore open. And the spirit descending upon him like a dove. I remember after a prayer meeting getting in a fight with a guy. It was awesome. 
because I was saying it was like a dove, and he was saying it was a dove. I said, learn what a metaphor is, and he said it wasn't. I mean, anyways, then we kiss and made up, and he doesn't go to our church anymore. But whether it was a dove or like a dove, my translation says like a dove. It's a symbol of something pure landing upon something pure and being upon Jesus. It's interesting. This is when Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his public ministry. And when the Holy Spirit came and alighted upon him, lit upon him, a voice came from heaven, verse 11, saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. One year, I was asked to speak at a father-son retreat in the Lebanon area. Lebanon, USA, not Russia or wherever that is. And uh, it was a father-son retreat. And I was thinking about the sayings of of the father to the son in the New Testament. And in my research at the time, you can look it up, the only times we see the father speaking in the New Testament are when he is affirming the son. And that was just something special to me. And it happened to be as I was looking that up that I was looking through some of my old files and I found a birthday card from my dad when I was turning 19 years old. My dad died when I was 19 years old. And it was a card from him that said, uh, he always called me Sonny, you know, and he said, Sonny, I'm sorry I can't be here with you in your birthday, but I want you to know we'll be together again. And I'm so proud of you. Love, dad. And man, I was weeping and bawling and and all of that. And it happened to be close to my birthday that I found that. And I took that card with me to that father-son retreat. And I just said, you know what, guys? How good it is to affirm to our sons our love for them. I'm a really lovey, lovey lovey-dovey dad. I mean, I just kiss my kids and just intimate with my kids. I just love my kids. And I just encourage you guys, learn from the father here in telling your sons how pleased, or, or daughters as well. In your case, please, um, you know, and uh, just affirming your love uh, to your to your children. But Jesus did that, and it's been said: if you live in His good pleasure, then you can do His good pleasure. And so that's what happens next: a very short story of the temptation of Jesus, the servant's temptation. Verse 12, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. So picture this, coming up out of the water, immediately the heavens tear apart, beautiful dove-like spirit coming down, and then driving him into the wilderness. Doesn't sound very dove-like, does it? On the, uh, so he, he's taken into the wilderness, and it was uh, Wearsby that said, the Spirit drove Jesus. These hard words mark a way of showing the intensity of the experience. And so Jesus is going to go into a very difficult place in the wilderness. Those of you that might remember the TV show Hee Haw, you'll remember Doc Campbell confronted by a patient who said he broke his arm in two places to which doc campbell replies well then stay out of them places (laughs) yet jesus is driven to a place where there's a tempting to break him verse 13 he was there in the wilderness for 40 days tempted by satan 
and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. It's a very short, quick story of the temptation of Jesus. Well, Rory, why don't you keep it that way? I will. Ironside says, Jesus' temptation was not to see if perchance he might fall into sin in the hour of stress, but rather to prove that he would not fail because he was the absolute sinless one. As the Union Pacific Railroad was being constructed, an elaborate trestle bridge was built across a large canyon in the west. Wanting to test the bridge, the builder loaded a train with enough extra cars and equipment to double its normal payload. The train was then driven into the middle of the bridge where it stayed an entire day. One worker said, are you trying to break this bridge? No, the builder replied. I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. In the same way, the temptations Jesus faced weren't designed to see if he would sin, but to prove that he couldn't. When we read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the actual language is, yet apart from sin. So what do we do with that? We take comfort. Hebrews goes on to say, and I'm closing, and I'm going to prove I'm closing by having Johnny come up. So he can stand there for 20 minutes while I keep talking. (laughs) No, what do we do with Jesus's victory over sin apart from sin? Verse 16 of Hebrews 4 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anybody here ever tempted, tested, tempted to sin? Just have that before you all the time. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, who is the forerunner. He's run the race. He's completed it in obedience. And now he ever lives to pray for us, to be our great high priest, to help us to have victory over our sin. And so I encourage you in the morning, in the mid-morning, at noontime, spend a little time getting away and getting on your knees and spending time with the Lord and saying, Lord, Thanks for getting me this far. I'm going to need victory in the next 30 minutes, in the next three hours. I want to walk in obedience and I want to come to you and receive the power beforehand instead of going ahead and just diving into sin and then on the tail end of sin being like, I'm so sorry, Lord. How about on this side, be like, Lord, you are worthy. You've done it. You went before me and now you give me the spirit and you pray for me. You have set me up for success. It's wonderful encouragement for us that are alive and remain. Lots to be said about the temptation of Jesus. We see that he was there with the wild beasts. Just telling you what Mark said just for a minute. Interesting, BiblePlaces.com says there's camels there, there's jackals there, there's deer, sheep, and the wild beast called a shepherd. That's from BiblePlaces.com. But then also notice that the angels came and ministered to him. The angels that were so intrigued, Peter tells us, that angels desired to look into what Jesus was doing. Because you see, 
Jesus didn't do the same redemption plan for angels. Angels didn't get these second chances in the, in the gospel applied to them. And so those angels look into the lengths that God did to go save these rebels, and they're amazed. And here they come, and they minister to him, and they're going to minister him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we can close your Bibles. And Lord, we just thank you for the Gospel of Mark. This brief, fast-paced book that just kind of helps us in our life like we need to be equipped and we're going, Lord. We want to take this with us. I pray, Lord, that every man and woman and child who's coming to this church will become forerunners, Lord. Will become John the Baptist of the Polina area, Lord. They will be preparing the way and they will be bringing the Messiah. They will be preaching Jesus. Lord, would you do that work of repentance in the Polina area, people confessing their sins, receiving salvation from your grace and your work on the cross. And Lord, may we also be those that preach the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us power to live this life in obedience and in boldness to preach. Thank you for Jesus who went and better than Adam who lived in a garden and had everything at his disposal to not sin and yet he sinned. Jesus in the wilderness fasting for 40 days was obedient even when all the circumstances were against him. Thank you that Romans says that because of one man's obedience life and justification of life come to those who would believe. And so I just pray for every man, woman, and child, that even right now they would just trust in you to be the one who removes their sin. Will you stand with me as we close in this last song?